0: Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Hosea chapter 2, Hosea chapter 2, we began a six-week study in Hosea last Sunday, it's kind of near the Old Testament, it's the first of the minor prophets, and you may remember that Hosea ministers near the end of the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel, he's been called the deathbed prophet of Israel because he's kind of the last gasp before the kingdom falls to Assyria. Really the theme of this book is God's scandalous love for sinners, for people that don't deserve his love. And today we'll see God's redeeming love, that God is a God who in his love redeems people who don't deserve saving. And if you're here this morning, no matter what burdens you bring with you, no matter what level of heartache or knowledge of your own heart, you can know this, that God's love can redeem our greatest failures. God's love can redeem our greatest failures. So as we begin reading in Hosea chapter 2, would you read along with me in verse 1. Hosea 2, say to your brothers, you are my people and sue so your sisters, you have received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore, she who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her. So that she cannot find her paths, she shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she didn't know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. And I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them, and I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. We'll pause there for now and jump back in in a few moments. But You track through history of various nations. Our own nation has never had a royal family, but, but nations that do track the, the, the governorship, the rulership, the kingship of their nation through the royal line. And the way the royal line works typically is that it passes from the father, the king, or mother to the oldest eligible child. Now, the key word there is eligible, because throughout history, a number of monarchs have had children that are ineligible to rule. In fact, Charles II of England is pretty infamous for having had 20 illegitimate children by at least seven different wives. So when he passes, none of his children are eligible to become king of England, because they're all illegitimate children and thus illegitimate rulers. So in his case, the throne passed to his brother, James II. And throughout history, what we see is the key is having a legitimate child. We find ourselves in a similar situation here in Hosea chapter 2. Imagine one day that we were one of the king's illegitimate children, and the Lord speaks to you and says, plead with your father that he leave his adultery not a fun position to be in. And we find ourselves in that very position, only in this case it's pleading with the queen mother, if you would, with Gomer. The Lord is pronouncing judgment on Gomer for her sin, but remember as we walk through this book we've got multiple levels of conversation going on. We've got a family, Hosea and his wife and their children, some of whom don't belong to Hosea. But beyond this, we have a nation, Israel, who's running after other gods. And if we track this theme throughout redemptive history, we ultimately come to ourselves. We have the same tendencies in our heart to wander from the Lord. So Hosea's family, Israel, and ultimately all of God's people. And how is it that God responds to our sin? It's with judgment in verses 2 through 13. If you didn't pick up on it as we read through these verses, it's a dark section, and the first thing that we see is that God judges sin in verses 2 through 5. Hosea appeals to his children to rebuke their mother. Now, this is kind of odd because it seems like in a case like this, the children are sort of, I don't know, innocent casualties of their mother's sin, and yet Hosea urges them to plead with her. Plead with your mother, Well, this idea of pleading or rebuking isn't a courtroom setting, sort of a law you're going before and interceding, but rather it's a voice of righteousness within a family relationship pleading with someone in the family to turn from her sin. Hosea calls them to reject their mother's behavior. So what is it that they are to reject? First, it's her unfaithfulness. Hosea uses two parallel terms in verse two, whoring and adultery neither of which are something you want to be accused of or guilty of. And as evidence of the fact that she's been unfaithful, she has multiple illegitimate children. Verse 4, her children are the children of whoredom. So again, before we drill too deeply, we've got to understand there are multiple layers going on here. We've got a family and we've got a nation. Have you ever walked into a conversation, and there's a conversation going on, and you realize like you're hearing the words that are being said, but you're realizing the conversation you're hearing isn't the real conversation? There's a conversation within a conversation. So there's something going on, but you sense there's something kind of lying underneath. That's what's going on here, and Jesus actually uses the same technique in Matthew chapter 21. So in the week of his death, Jesus enters Jerusalem, and before he dies on Friday on the cross— He's in the temple teaching, and as he's there teaching, the authorities come to him, and they begin to debate him. They resent the way he's teaching, and as they do this, they reject his authority. Jesus tells them a story, and the story he tells them is about a a vineyard owner, a man who owns land. He's invested a lot of time, effort, and money in his property, and now he's gone away, and when he left, he leased his property to some tenants. Now, the tenants, they have the right to work the land, but because they're renting, they have to pay the landlord rent. So now they've farmed, they, they've, uh, they've uh, gotten fruit off the vineyard, and it's time to pay the rent. And so the landowner sends his servants to collect the rent. Well, When the servants show up, the tenants resent this. They rightfully owe the rent, but instead they beat some servants. They kill other servants and stone others. Well, as you can imagine, the landowner is very frustrated by the situation. So he says, okay, I'll send my son. They'll listen to my son. But when the son shows up, these evil tenants say, look, If we kill the son, we get the land because there's no one to inherit the land, so they kill the farmer's son. Jesus tells these leaders this story. And then he asks them the question, now what do you suppose the landowner will do after they kill his son? Now, these leaders may be stubborn, but they're not stupid. And so they say, he will put those wretches to a miserable death. And then Jesus highlights that he's telling them a story, and it's a story about them. He says, therefore, I tell you, God will take the kingdom from you and give it to those who bear its fruits. You see, there's a story within a story, and that's the same strategy Hosea is, going, is using here. This is ostensibly a conversation about a family, but it's really a conversation about God's people. Remarkably, Gomer has pursued her sin for cheap price. Verse 5, I will go after my lovers for bread, water, wool, flax, oil, and drink. But what's the baseline issue? Look at verse 8. The Lord says, she didn't know it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil. Then down to the end of verse 13, she went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. And here we begin to understand. You see, the outward evidence of Gomer's unfaithfulness is the list of lovers and her illegitimate children, but the core of her failure is that she forgot God. Her unfaithfulness is rooted in her God-forgetfulness. And we're not too unlike this. There's a latent atheism that lives within each of us. Now, now bear with me, because I imagine, now there may be someone here who says God doesn't exist, but I imagine most of us would assent to the idea that there is a God. But practically speaking, there are moments for all of us when we live as if God doesn't exist. Because all of us, no matter how long we've known the Lord, still in moments and sometimes in seasons forget that God rules over all. Have you ever had a moment in life where you got upset over something really dumb? So your husband leaves his shoes in the same place and it just drives you crazy. Your mom nags you about the same thing and you just, you just blow your lid. You cannot handle it one more time. And if you took a step back in that moment and you realized, okay, like I am getting so angry over something really, really stupid. It's really small. Like, where are his shoes? It's not a great consequence. It really doesn't matter. And yet we completely lose it in that moment. In that moment, we're living as if God doesn't exist. And and let me demonstrate to you how this is true. Imagine that in that same moment, same experience, that randomly Jesus chooses you out of all the people in the world, and boom, he shows up next to you. Now you walk into the room, you see the same pair of shoes in the same place. And suddenly, you manage to find the self-control not to blow your lid. Because Jesus is there with you. You see, to practice the presence of God is to live as if God exists, but there are moments for all of us when we're arguing, when we forget that God is active and present in the world. Well, what does our practical atheism, our sin, deserve? Punishment. And God outlines punishment in verses 16, 6 through 13, verse 6. I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her. James chapter 4 verse 6 reiterates this same idea in the New Testament. God gives grace to humble people, but he resists the proud. And the picture that we have here is one of pain and frustration. You ever got on a hike, uh, maybe uh, through the woods or through a field, and you came to a briar patch? I grew up on some property with both woods and pastures, and this was kind of like a not infrequent thing. We'd be playing baseball, someone would hit the ball into a field... And the ball would land in a patch of briars. How do you walk through briars? Like this. like, like Picking your way very carefully through. Unless you're an idiot because then you get scratched up. get all torn up by it. Briars, it, it's, it's a frust- like one moment you could be walking like this. You hit those and you're very carefully making your way through because of the frustration. The little pain. It may not kill you, but it makes life pretty uncomfortable. Well, frustrations in life are often gracious reminders from God that he is God and we are not. Gomer sought satisfaction from lovers. Israel pursued alliances with ungodly nations that God had forbidden, and God says this kind of life will bring pain and frustration. And we do the same thing, don't we? I mean, unless you're an ambassador, we aren't making international alliances, but we do pursue other things. I mean, we think we can have our cake and eat our cake too. We think we can pursue God in this world at the same time. I mean, church history is full of examples of syncretism. Syncretism is taking the true worship of God and seeking to mix in or add other things to that. And this is, the church is full of this throughout history in Israel and Judah, This day, it looks like taking the true worship of Yahweh, the true God, and adding a little Baal worship, a little idol worship to that. We get to the New Testament, and in the early church, it looked like having true Christianity, faith in Christ alone, and adding to that Old Covenant Judaism, the idea that we have to behave in a certain way to earn God's favor. For us, it looks different, but the heart is the same. We maintain our core commitments to a life of comfort, a certain standard of living, a certain expectation, and we sprinkle a little Jesus into the mix. How do we know what we truly worship? Threaten someone's idol and they get angry. What do we worship? What do you get angry about? And idol worship, as we see it here, involves two things. It involves, on the one hand, forgetting God, forgetfulness, and on the other hand, pursuing something else in the place of God as our chief object, as our chief goal, as our chief end in life. What is your chief pursuit? Maybe another way of asking the question is, what do you think about when you're not thinking about anything? What do you dream about? What is your idle time put toward? Your your time, your energy, your thoughts, your dreams. We enter a moment like we're entering where everything is awkward. Everyone's a little bit sad or frustrated or grieved. Relationally impoverished more than usual. And God peels the layers off of our idolatry. And often what's exposed underneath isn't pretty at all trials have a way of exposing who we truly are. God's first punishment is frustration. The second is exposure. Look at verse 10. I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. Part of God's judgment on his people is to expose them for who they truly are. And when people see us for who we are, there's a level of shame in that exposure that cripples our Christian witness. Because we serve a beautiful Savior, but sometimes God's people aren't quite so pretty. And as we think through this, I want to think through this on two levels. First, on a broad level, kind of a macro broad level, and then also on a personal level. First, on a broad level, it is difficult to understand right now, in this moment in time, the tendency of Christians in the Christian church to spend all of our relational dollars on political conversations that have primarily detrimental effects on the advance of the gospel. Now, look, I'm not talking about things that Scripture is really clear about or saying we apologize for what God's Word says, or that you shouldn't have opinions, or be invested in the process, but we've completely lost our way. Tail, wagging dog, cart before horse. I mean, if as if Christians, we spend all of our energy shouting people down who disagree with us, the light of the gospel is completely hidden. And how do we do this? We do this often, not only on issues that are unclear in Scripture, but on issues that aren't even addressed anywhere in the Bible. And we're going to spend all of our relational energy on this the front edge of our christian witness must be the compelling love of christ god's love for us compelling us to love others but what about a personal level of exposure well here's where it gets tough what do we do when god exposes our sin, my sin, when there's nowhere to hide. Now, on an earthly level, there are consequences for sin. In, an, in a moment of anger, you strike someone. There's a consequence for that. In an unguarded moment, you pursue sexual sin. There's a consequence for that. Real sin has real consequence. But ultimately, for the follower of Christ, we don't need to fear exposure so hebrews chapter 4 describes for us a day a coming day a hope of an eternal rest with god you ever get tired you ever get weary hebrews 4 tells us there's coming a day when you will feel eternally rested but remarkably while the writer is trying to encourage us about that coming day he says something remarkably terrifying he says all things are naked and exposed. To the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That is a terrifying reality. But the truth is, we don't need to fear exposure because in God's eyes, we are exposed. There's nothing hidden from the eyes of the Lord. And you say, that doesn't sound bad. Good, that sounds like terrible news. But the writer goes on immediately after this. He describes for us where our hope is. He says, for we do not have a high priest. Who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Therefore, the writer says, we have confidence to draw near to the throne of grace. For the Christian who approaches God's throne, we find not a throne of judgment, but a throne of grace. Grace. And when we get there, we will find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. You see, the truth is for the Christian, God knows who we are and he still loves us. We don't show up and God opens the book and he's like, whoa, I didn't know that's who you were. God already knows the things that you fear someone might find out, the things that in the darkest, deepest recesses of your heart, The thing that brings you the most shame God knows, God loves, and God has already made provision for in Jesus. We don't need to fear because Jesus has gone before us. When our sin cries guilty, Jesus says righteous. When the accuser shouts, cast him out, Jesus says, welcome, When our guilt whispers in our mind, unworthy. Jesus says, you are mine. You are precious in my sight. We don't need to fear exposure because our acceptance is in Christ, not in ourselves. His goodness, his righteousness, his worthiness. One of my favorite quotes, the great reformer Martin Luther put it powerfully, so... When the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. Our hope is in Christ. God's final judgment is grief. Verse 11, I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. Like the prodigal son that Jake introduced us to a few weeks ago, sin ends up in the same place for all of us, emptiness. The pleasures of sin are real, but they are temporary. Grief comes to all who search for ultimate joy anywhere but in Christ. So with the weight of God's judgment pressing in, let's look at verses 14 and 15. Let's read those together now. Therefore, verse 14, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer us as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of of Egypt. Now, some sections in God's word defy explanation. Verse 14 is absolutely mind-blowing. What is the Lord saying at the end of verse 13, just before that? He says, she forgot me, declares the Lord. And then what's the first word in verse 14? Therefore. Now, if you or I were judge and were writing this, it would look something like this. She forgot me, therefore I judged her but we find something shocking here. God's character is so merciful, so gracious. Verse 13, she forgot me, therefore, verse 14, I will allure her and speak tenderly to her. God's response to our sin is mercy. Author Dane Ortland says, the sins of those who belong to God open the floodgates of his heart of compassion for us the dam breaks. It is not our loveliness that wins his love. It is our unloveliness. God's character is not like ours. I mean, this makes no sense. Our sin moves God to compassion. Now, this isn't to negate the effects of God's judgment, but God's heart is compassion. His holy character means that he must judge sin, but his heart, oh, his heart is love. Love. The key to a vibrant, joyful relationship with God is to understand the character of God. And we understand the character of God as God has revealed it in his word. We all create an image of God and we correct that image over and over and over again by forming our minds, forming our lives, shaping them according to the word of God. God takes our sins seriously, but he's long-suffering wooing us toward repentance. God is a God of winsome grace. Now, I'm sure there's no one else like this, but imagine hypothetically that there is a food in the world that you don't care for. As a kid, when I was growing up, I detested squash. Now, at this point in my life, I actually really enjoyed it. for all the squash lovers out there, I'm I'm pro-squash. But there was a time in my life where it was really difficult to eat. And when my mom stuck squash on my plate, that was not a good night. The taste, the feel, the sliding down, I mean, it was just not a good situation. I dreaded that. On the other hand, there is a food that in the annals of history belongs in the Food Hall of Fame. And you know it because when you walk in the door, it makes you happy. When there are fresh baked chocolate chip cookies in the oven, you don't even have to taste them. I mean, those things, they call your name the minute you begin to smell them. And they're warm and fresh and gooey just out of the oven. And those chips melt in your mouth. And you got a glass of milk. I mean, you're like, I don't know if heaven is on earth. But if it is, here it is right here with me right now. I mean, chocolate chip cookies just call my name as soon as I walk in the door. And when it comes to our view of God, a lot of us walk through life viewing our relationship with God like my relationship with squash it's there i guess it's good for me because that's what they tell me i gotta consume it maybe one day i'll learn to like it i'll go to church hope it'll make a difference maybe i don't know if i'm extra committed i may even occasionally crack over my open my bible sometime when i'm not at church and i'll trust that in the end it'll do me some good but there are others who have seen a vision of their savior like we see in god's word and that vision is of a gracious merciful loving compelling a scent that wafts toward you and you smell jesus and it draws you in the door you consume god's word and it melts in your mouth because the heart of your savior is so tender so precious so loving it's beyond anything that you can imagine and in those moments you know you're not in heaven but if you were this is heaven on earth because you've gotten such a vision of our God that you begin to understand love in a way that is inhuman is beyond human it's superhuman, because the God revealed to us in his word is far better than any earthly treat you could imagine if we view our relationship with God and the church like a kid eating a vegetable that he's got to consume but he doesn't like, it's possible that we haven't understood God's character or possible even further that we haven't understood the gospel itself. The Bible is full of the record of the repeated sin of humans against our Creator but equally and even more beautiful alongside this is the record of God's mercy toward his people. Let the understanding of God's judgment against sin melt your heart at the thought of his mercy that God could love us, a soul like me that's done what I have done, that's thought what I have thought, that's said what I have said. It's not our loveliness that wins his affection. It is our unloveliness you deserve judgment. But through Christ, you can receive mercy. If you turn from your sin and cry out in faith to this Savior today, He will save you. Would you turn from your sin and trust Him? God's mercy doesn't even stop there. Look at verse 15. I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. In Joshua chapter 7, uh, God's people have recently left Egypt. They've traveled through the wilderness. They've wandered for 40 years, and now they're entering the promised land. The first city they come to is Jericho. Jericho is a mighty city with mighty walls. And God miraculously gives the children of Israel Jericho. It's the greatest battle that was never fought. They march around the walls for seven days. They come tumbling down, and God's people are there to clean up the mess. But God also told them, when you enter the land, this first city it's the first fruits. It belongs to me. You dedicate it to me. Nothing there belongs to you. Yet one of God's children, Achan, sinned against the Lord. He secretly took some clothes and some money, hid them in his tent. Well, God's people leave this mighty city and travel to a podunk town in the middle of nowhere, Ai. And they're like, we got this, we'll conquer this. And so they go out against the city and 36 people die. And Joshua is distraught. Lord, I thought you gave us this land. What happened? And then the Lord tells him there is sin in the camp. And he begins looking and sure enough, God reveals that Achan is the man. And so God judges Achan for his sin. He's executed along with his family. And there they mark, with this, mark this spot with a pile of stones. And Joshua tells us, therefore, because of what happened there, the people that died on the judgment on Achan, they named that valley the Valley of Achor, which means trouble. And yet what we have here is that God takes the Valley of Trouble and turns it to hope. Through Christ, God takes the markers of our greatest failures and turns them into signs of hope. If our hope were in ourselves and in our goodness, the failure in the valley of trouble would be nothing but trouble. But God turns trouble to hope through Jesus. And ultimately, his mercy will result in an expansion and restoration of his covenant blessings, redemption, in verses 16 through 23. Let's pick it up in verse 16. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. and I will abolish the bow, the sword and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. You find a key phrase three times in these verses, verse 16, in that day, verse 18, on that day, verse 21, in that day. The day of the Lord is a reference to a time in the future when Christ will return and do two things. He will judge his enemies and he will fully and finally redeem his people. The covenant is restored in verses 16 and 17. We see a changing nature between God and his people, their relationship you will call me my husband, the Lord says, and no longer my Baal. The Hebrew word Baal literally means master or owner. But in addition to this literal meaning, Baal is a common term for Canaanite deities. We see it used that way even in this passage. But one thing that signifies the difference between Yahweh, the true God, the God of Israel, and Baal is that the Lord is no distant master. He's committed to a faithful, intimate love for his people. God rules his people, but not as a distant master, rather as a loving husband and father. Then God expands the covenant. When Christ returns, he will redeem his people, but he'll also redeem creation itself. Verse 18, I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. If that sounds familiar, it's because we find those same categories in Genesis chapter 1 at the creation account. God spoke creation into existence, and Adam and Eve's fall into sin broke not just our relationship with our Creator, but the creation itself. And the return of Christ means that God's blessings will not flow just to humanity, but to all creation. That's why in the well-known Chris- Christmas hymn, Joy to the World, is actually a second advent, a return of Christ hymn. We find this verse, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground, because he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And when he comes, God will establish a kingdom of eternal peace. Verse 18, I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war. I will make you lie down in safety. And then God, through Christ, seals his covenant, verses 19 through 23. Verse 19 is a complete reversal of everything that's been happening. Israel has abandoned her vows to God, but a new covenant is coming, when the Lord will fully and finally seal his relationship with his people. Betrothal isn't a word that we use a lot today, and the idea of Israelite betrothal lies somewhere in our culture between engagement and marriage. So it's not kind of like you seal the deal in the end. but It's not just putting a ring on a finger. Somewhere there's, there's a formal agreement between two families to commit in marriage. So to break that is breaking a legal formal agreement. Big deal. Well, you seal this agreement with the giving of gifts. If you were wealthy, I don't know, you'd give some horses, camels, or sheep or something like that. If you were not wealthy, you'd find something lesser to give. And God says he betroths himself to us. And the gifts that God gives in sign of this betrothal, verse 19, are righteousness, justice, steadfast love, mercy, and faithfulness. Righteousness and justice tell us that we are in a perfectly right relationship with the Lord. Steadfast love, mercy, and faithfulness signify to us God's loyal love. Unlike us, God never breaks a promise. And then in separate bookends, verse 1, verse 23... Verse 1, say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Verse 23, I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people. God reverses the curse. So what's the end result of all this? Verse 20, you shall know the Lord. Now this verb know is significant to understand the full impact of this section. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, we read that Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. So the idea of knowing, the Hebrew word yada is a reference to the most intimate human relationship. You see, to know God isn't to know data about God. It's not to memorize a set of facts about God. It's to experience a level of relational intimacy that is reserved for the most sacred human intimacy. Imagine with me this morning that you've been married for a while. So my wife and I, this month, are coming up on 14 years of marriage. We mark our anniversary at Ashley River in our wedding anniversary the same day. So if I forget my wedding anniversary, I'll forget when I came here, but they're kind of both locked in at this point. But imagine with me that after 14 years, I'd spent that 14 years memorizing statistics about my wife. I don't know. Bedtime, rising time. Height, weight measurements. Uh, You know, rate of walking. Certain, I don't know, the the way she drives. I, I memorized certain statistics, but I didn't know her. I spent the time memorizing things about her, but there wasn't a personal committed relationship. It's not love to know data. It's love when you know the person. So it's no surprise to arrive in Ephesians 5 and find that this is the picture of Christ's love for us, Christ's love for the church. And earlier in Ephesians, Paul describes how God guarantees this blessing. In Christ, Ephesians 1, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. We're in this betrothal period. We're in this in-between. We don't have it yet. But God has sealed it permanently, guaranteed it with his Holy Spirit. Is your conception of God some austere, distant being who deserves your worship but cares nothing for you, then you don't know God? Or is your conception of the most beauty-filled, life-giving relationship? And the beauty of the way that God works is if you've been in the gift of a lifelong loving marriage, you know that's a small taste of what's coming. But if, on the other hand, you've been given the gift of no marriage, you're single, or the gift of a bad marriage or a broken marriage, you can know it's not the reality either. Our relationship with our Creator is nothing like this. The ultimate reality is our relationship with Christ. Marriage on this earth is a small taste of the glory that's coming. Well, if this is true, why is there so much heartache on the way? 1 Corinthians 13 tells us. It's a beautiful meditation on the nature of love. We know in part today. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then face to face. Now, Paul says, I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Oh, brothers and sisters, the best that we experience in this life is a small taste of the glory that's coming. We serve a gracious, redeeming, loving God. Would you turn to him in faith? Let's talk to him now. Let's take a moment to respond to God's word in repentance in faith. i'll give you a moment to talk with him and then i'll close this time in prayer